Amen. Well, again, this is the first week of Advent. And so through the end of the year, we're going to take a little break, short break from our series through Galatians and, and just focus on the birth of Christ as we always do at Christmas time. Uh, but this year, what we're going to be doing is we're going to give some attention to some ways in which the coming of Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, whether that's through prophecies or types or imagery. And this is really important for us to do sometimes because it reminds us that the coming of Jesus was not like this last ditch effort by God to save mankind, right? Like it wasn't as if God had exhausted all other options and sending his son to take on flesh, to be arrested, to be crucified and suffer on our, on our behalf. Like that was the nuclear option when everything else failed. I mean, the coming of Christ to redeem his people was the plan from the very beginning. And by God's grace, he gives us these images and pictures and shadows and types throughout the Old Testament. And so this morning with the Advent theme of hope, we're going to see that there really was hope for mankind from the very beginning, especially for God's people, even immediately after the fall. So uh, let me invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3. And as you find your way there, uh, I want you to consider just for a moment that throughout history, literature and film have been filled with stories of heroes that save the day. And they usually do that by slaying some kind of snake-like creature. Oftentimes a dragon, right? Can you think of any of those stories off the top of your head? There's a ton of them, right? Like one example in Christian literature is The Pilgrim's Progress. You remember that story by, by John Bunyan in it, if you've never read it? Bunyan tells this allegorical tale of, of the main character, Christian, who's, who's making his journey to the celestial city. And on his journey, he meets all kinds of characters. They're all meant to display different or um, uh, depict various experiences of the Christian life. And in one point in his journey, Christian meets and battles a character named Apollyon. And he's the prince of the city of destruction. And this is the way Bunyan describes that character. He says this, Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke. So here's Christian battling this dragon. Another example, this is a, a non-Christian example. I don't know if you've ever heard of this story or not, but it's called Harry Potter. Um, small series. Uh, it's filled with snake imagery, right? If you know the story, just to give just a few examples. I mean, one of the houses of Hogwarts, the house where all the bad guys come from, is a house called Slytherin with the snake as its symbol. Right, the main villain, he has a snake as his loyal sidekick. There's this special snake language that they can all speak. And there's so many more examples in that series. Even less popular stories tell the same tale of a hero battling some kind of serpent-like creature. So for example, my youngest daughter, she has a children's book and it's called Unicorns Are the Worst. And it tells the story of, of a troll and, 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 and he just complains page after page about his unicorn neighbors and all the ways that they're the worst. Until one day the troll's attacked by a dragon and the unicorns come to his defense and they defeat the dragon. And the book ends with the troll at the tea party with the unicorn saying, well, actually, dragons are the worst. <laughs> I mean, there's just countless stories 
in, in popular literature that, that describes some kind of hero or some heroes that face the serpent or face the dragon in order to save the damsel in distress. And the reason for this is that because those epic stories, what they're doing is they're echoing the greatest story, the story of redemption, the story of the gospel. This is our story. And we're going to see this very clearly this morning, again, in Genesis chapter 3. And before we read, we know the context, right? Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth, everything that, that's in it. God creates the first humans, Adam and Eve. He places them in the Garden of Eden to tend it, to uh, be fruitful. God gives them very wide boundaries in which they're to, to live under his good rule and reign. Really the only boundary God gives them is that they're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And then as we roll into chapter 3, things go terribly wrong. In fact, we read this in the very first verse of chapter 3, Genesis 3.1. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so here we have Adam and Eve... They're in the Garden of Eden. They're under the reign of God. And then we're introduced to this other character in the story who's only identified here as the serpent. And the text doesn't say immediately or specifically who we're talking about here or who this is. But we do know from other places in Scripture that, that we're talking about Satan. Right? And the Bible describes Satan as the great enemy of God and God's people. The Bible describes him as this created being who rebelled against God and has fallen, that he doesn't work alone. He leads a pack of fallen angels we know as demons. The Bible describes Satan in many ways, including tempter, enemy, evil one, murderer, sinner, deceiver, father of lies. And as we walk through Genesis 3, we see him live up to especially those last two descriptions of the deceiver and the father of lies. Um, in the way that he tempts Eve and Adam, doesn't he? Because he comes to them and he tempts them by questioning both God's word and God's motives. In other words, there in verse 1, he says very literally, God didn't really say that, did he? He didn't really mean that. He didn't really say what you think he said. Later on, as you read chapter 3, he, he questions God's motives and basically saying, I mean, God must not want the best for you. He must not want your good. He must not care about you like you think he does. And we know the story, Adam and Eve, given to temptation, they eat, they sin. And from then on, sin enters into the world, into humanity. And, and the story continues. We're not going to read all the verses this morning, but, but God comes and he confronts the serpent and Adam and Eve, and he pronounces judgment in the form of curses on them. And the first part of the curse is actually on the serpent, Satan. You see that all the way in verse 14. And in reality, the Bible really could have ended right here, right? Like the story could have ended. Like God would have every right to come and end everything. I mean, he did tell Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit, they would die. Like there was warning. They can't say he didn't warn them. Again, the Bible could have ended at verse 14. But by God's grace, we have verse 15. Genesis 3 uh, verse 15. I want us to focus on this. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And it's this amazing promise. And we shouldn't miss this, that in the midst of pronouncing curses, in the midst of pronouncing judgments, God still brings a promise of future redemption. But like notice, even before God comes and pronounces judgment on man and woman, a judgment they deserve, they rightfully earned, before he even does that, he offers hope. He offers a promise of hope. And this verse, Genesis 3.15, has everything to do with Christmas. In fact, the 18th century preacher George Whitfield, he preached on this one time. And he told his audience, on reading to you these words, talking about Genesis 3.15, I may address you in the language of the holy angels to the shepherds that were watching their flocks by night. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Why? Well, because God right there has just promised that there's going to be a redeemer who's going to come, who's going to be born, who's going to defeat the serpent and make all things right again. In fact, theologians have called this verse, Genesis 3.15, they've labeled this in Latin, Proto-Evangelium, or, or the first gospel. And the reason is because this is the first time in the entire Bible that the gospel is presented. Genesis 3. Now the whole gospel isn't fully presented, of course, but it's there. In fact, Calvin said of it that it's almost as if a few slender sparks beamed forth in Genesis 3.15. It's kind of like if you wake up in the morning, sun's already out, and you just kind of peel back the curtain just a little bit to let a single ray of sunshine fill that empty room. That's what Genesis 3.15 is. Or you can think of it as like kind of the acorn of the Bible, right? It's this acorn that, that sprouts up into the fullness of an oak tree that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's here that the initial promise is made that God would redeem his people. So this is a very, very important verse and it's found in the opening pages of the Bible. So mark it, circle it, underline it, highlight it in your, in your Bible. Because what it does is it sets the stage for everything that God's going to do afterwards. So let's just look at it one more time in a little more detail. Genesis 3.15. God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, God says that he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And enmity is not really a word we use a lot today, but, but of course it carries with it this idea of hostility or this posture of animosity. In fact, the same word is used in other places in the Old Testament to describe nations that are at war with one another. This is in Ezekiel 25, for example. It's used to describe the kind of um, hatred that results in murder in Numbers 35. But the point is that, that when God uses this word, he says that there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. He's foretelling of this life and death struggle. It's not like they're just going to be frustrated with each other. But they want the, that the enmity is, is life and death. And he says that this enmity, this hostility will be between Satan and Eve and, and ultimately between Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring. So the question is, like, who is that? Who's the offspring? Who is God talking about here? What does this mean? Well, offspring here represents both a corporate identity as well as an individual identity. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible presents humanity uh, as divided into two groups of people. The redeemed and the non-redeemed, or the saved and the lost, the people of God and those who are not the people of God, those who have God as their father and those who have Satan as theirs. 
In fact, this is the language Jesus uses in his teaching ministry when he confronts those that don't follow him. So for example, John chapter 8, verse 42, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Again, Jesus presenting this truth that there's two groups of people throughout history. Again, those that belong to the kingdom of God and those who belong to the kingdom of this world and its father, Satan. And naturally, there's this enmity between the two groups. But there's also an individual identity in, in view here in this promise. So that word offspring that he uses there in Genesis 3.15, uh, it can be translated as seed. So the seed of the woman and, and your seed. And this theme of seed runs throughout the Bible, especially here in Genesis. So for example, God makes this promise to Abraham. We see this in Genesis 12 and later. This promise goes to Abraham and his seed or his offspring. This idea of this promise to a corporate body of people. But then we learn later in the New Testament that there, there's a true seed or a true offspring. That's not a corporate people, but an individual in Jesus. So for example, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul kind of explains this for us. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And so all of that to say, when, when God pronounces this curse on Satan, He's referring both to this battle between the people of God and Satan and his people, and most importantly, between Satan and Jesus, the true seed of the woman. In fact, this is clear at that second line of Genesis 3.15. When God explains that in this battle, in this hostility, in this life and death um, struggle between you and the true seed of the woman, um, that Satan's head will be bruised, while Satan would bruise Jesus' heel. Bruise can also mean crush. It can be translated that way. Maybe in your translation it says that. But the main emphasis is on those two words, head and heel. Like we know that a head injury is far worse than a heel injury. I would much rather be hit in the heel than in the head. Right? The idea here is that someone's going to come and, and while Satan will, will cause him to suffer, there will be some pain, there will be some injury he will ultimately kill Satan. Again, the main point is that this Redeemer, Jesus, even though he's going to suffer in his arrest and crucifixion, his heel will be bruised. And yet in so doing, he's going to deliver a fatal blow to our great enemies, namely Satan, sin, and death. Again, Genesis 3.15 is this incredible promise that God says, you know, I'm not done yet. I'm going to send a Redeemer. And there's going to be suffering on his behalf, but he will defeat you, the great enemy of me and my people. So again, this verse, it tells us so much. It tells us so much about God. It tells us so much about his work in the gospel. It tells us so much about the Bible story. 
tells us so much about our future and so much more. And there's a ton that we could talk about. But let me just give you three lessons this morning from the very first gospel in Genesis 3.15. Here's what I don't want us to miss. Number one, that the church has an enemy, but not a conqueror. Right? The church has an enemy, but not a conqueror. Like throughout history, the people of God have faced hostility. The church has faced persecution and physical violence and even death, even still today. And all of this stems from the fall, what we read in Genesis 3. Again, there's this enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, led by Satan himself. In fact, sometime go and read Revelation chapter 12. John gets this incredible vision of, of, of um, kind of like this, this spiritual view of everything that's happening. And Revelation 12 describes Satan as this dragon. This dragon is the, the picture of Satan throughout the book of Revelation. And in it, it describes this vision of the dragon wanting to kill the woman and her male child, Revelation 12 says. But because he can't, he gets frustrated and he actually goes after and makes war against the, women, the woman's other offspring, the church. And so as the people of God, we, we should not be surprised by hostility, right? Like as we seek to follow Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised that we have to endure some things. Like hostility is a reality we should all expect and be prepared to endure. But as we do that, we ought to remember who our true enemy is in Satan, right? So as Peter warns us, we looked at this uh, a couple of series ago, be alert. Why? Because Satan is on the prowl looking to devour. But he's real. He's hungry. So live with eyes wide open to the reality that you have a true enemy. However, he's not your conqueror. You have a true enemy in him, but he's not your conqueror. He's been crushed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And because of your repentant faith in the finished work of Christ, you get to share in that victory. I mean, this is what Jesus meant when, when he's talking to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is there going to be an enemy? Of course. Will they prevail? No. And it's this truth that, that Paul um, says to the Roman believers in Romans 8 when he says in verse 37, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that death, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does Paul say? Yeah, there's some enemy, but will they separate us from Christ? No. In fact, we're more than conquerors through him. Why? Because he's the one who's crushed the enemy. He's the one who's bruised the head of Satan. And then at the end of Romans, at the end of the letter, Paul gives probably my favorite benediction in all of the Bible when he says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But what's he saying? How is Satan crushed under our feet? Well, because we're in Christ, right? Like we're so united to him that his victory is our victory. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And so as Christ crushes Satan, we're with him in his victory. And Paul says, don't forget that. Yeah, you have an enemy. Don't forget that. But remember, Satan's already crushed him. Or, or Jesus has already crushed Satan. So do you feel defeated today? 
Like, do you feel conquered by your sin? Do you sense your enemy gloating over you this morning? Let me encourage you with the words that Spurgeon, he, he preached on this one time uh, back in 1876. And this is the encouragement he gave his congregation. He said this, let us resist the devil always with this belief that he has a, received a broken head. Let us do this bravely and tell him to his teeth that we're not afraid of him. Tell him to recollect his bruised head. We know him and we see the deadly wound he bears. His power is gone. He's fighting a lost battle. He's contending against omnipotence. He set himself against the oath of the Father, against the blood of the incarnate Son, against the eternal power and Godhead of the blessed Spirit, all of which are engaged in the defense of the seed of the woman in the day of battle. Therefore, brethren, be steadfast in resisting the evil one, being strong in faith, giving glory to God. Again, the church has an enemy, but not a conqueror. And to make it more personal, if you're a Christian this morning, you have an enemy, but you do not have a conqueror, right? A second lesson we, we should note here, the end is not a mystery, so our hope is not a fantasy, okay? The end is not a mystery, so our hope is not a fantasy. Again, the ultimate end of history, the ultimate end of our story is not a cliffhanger. Right? Like we're, we aren't anxiously waiting for, for that last page of the story to turn so we can find out what's going to happen. We don't have to sit on the edge of our seats waiting for the, the last episode of the series to drop next week um, because we can't wait to see what happens. We don't have to do that. And even though not all of the details were presented there, the end was known from the beginning. God says Satan and his minions will be defeated by God's promised redeemer. And so you really can look to the future with confidence. You really can uh, live with hope because the Christian life is one in which you can joyfully and boldly walk with the assurance of victory rather than the prospect of defeat. Like never think that hope for a Christian is walking through life with fingers crossed or merely wishing upon a star. Right? The end has been settled. Jesus has won. And we as his people, we live out of this shared victory today because we know that victory will be truly realized one day soon. Uh, we read what happens, right? Jesus will one day soon come back and he'll finish grinding the head of Satan into the dust for all eternity. Again, the end is not a mystery. So your hope is not a fantasy. It's real. And let me give you the third one. That the gospel is the antidote to the serpent's poison. The gospel is the antidote to the serpent's poison. There's this other great picture in the Old Testament uh, that brings so much imagery to us. This is in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 21, we read the story uh, about this moment in Israel's history who they're wandering through the desert. God's bringing them to the promised land. And, and there's this moment as so many times uh, throughout this journey where the nation of Israel are just complaining against God. They're rebelling against God and, and their attitudes and their actions and their words. And, and so God brings judgment on them. And, and in Numbers 21, he does so actually by sending these venomous snakes to bite them. Kind of a unique judgment on them. But God tells them at the same time, tells Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to fashion a serpent. I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to lift that serpent up and tell the people, if you're bit by a snake, you just look to the serpent on the pole and you'll be healed. Well, what, what's God doing? That's a really weird moment. But he's foreshadowing what Christ is doing. 
This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us in his death on the cross lifted up. In fact, Jesus refers to the scene in John 3. Jesus says, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That Jesus, in taking on flesh, being born of a woman, going to the cross, Jesus takes the bite from the serpent for us so that we don't have to. That in this life and death struggle, this life and death battle between Satan and us, Jesus, again, by taking on flesh, associates with humanity. He's taking our side and fighting the battle for us. And now for anyone who who looks to him and repents in faith, they can be healed. They can have life. They find the antidote in the gospel. So when you feel the serpent, uh, the stinging bites of the serpent at your heels, when you're tempted to believe his lies, when you're tempted to believe and own the condemnation that he whispers into your ear, when you're tempted to be swallowed up by fear, tempted to be overwhelmed by the prospect of death, when Satan bites, what we do is we put on the gospel that's crushed his head. In fact, Ambrose, this fourth century church father, he once wrote, let us put on sandals of the gospel that shut out the serpent's poison and blunt his bites. This is what we do. We look once again to the gospel. We can have hope. Why? Because Christ has crushed the head of the, of the serpent. And we share in his victory. And if you've never trusted in Christ, what we need to say is, you need to feel the bite of the serpent on your soul today. You need to feel it. And even though it's a death blow, the good news is, is that if you look to Christ this morning in faith and repentance, if you do that, you'll find healing and life. You can find hope and healing. And again, um, the antidote in the gospel of Jesus. And we'd implore you to do that today. But for those of us who have done that as Christians, I mean, we don't always walk in confidence, do we? Right? Like we don't always live life with hope. And when we find that we lack hope, when we find that we're overwhelmed by fear, when we find that we're overwhelmed by this anxiety that grips our souls and our hearts, we find that there's a lack of belief at the root. In other words, we're not believing that Jesus has overcome Satan. Right? We're not believing that Jesus has overcome death. We're not believing that Jesus has overcome sin. We're not believing that he's graciously swept us up in his arms this side of the victory. And so we need to look again to the gospel. The good news when we celebrate hope this Advent is that we have a Savior who's come and crushed the head of the serpent, our great enemy, and we share in that victory, and that will never change.